You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. As we've been working through the book of Acts, uh, for quite some time, God has been doing a radical work of salvation uh, among the Gentiles. And as we were in Acts chapter 10, we saw that in the life and in the home of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, uh, we saw him get saved uh, through the ministry of Peter there. And remember, Peter just had this divine revelation, this extraordinary way of knowing that, uh, that uh, a man was needing to be ministered to there through the dream and the events that happened there in Acts chapter 10. And then in Acts chapter 11, Peter defended the gospel going forth uh, to the Gentiles. He defended that uh, revival um, to the ch- uh, Jerusalem church there, full of Jews, uh, Jewish believers. Uh, and so that was kind of the first taste that the Jews had had of Gentiles becoming Christians. Uh, then we see um, in chapter 11, uh, the revival happening in Antioch when some unnamed evangelists uh, headed on over and preached the gospel there. This radical revival took place in Antioch, uh, just north of Israel there. And again, the Jerusalem church heard about that and were wondering what, what's going on, you know? They're kind of getting their feet wet with Gentiles getting saved. And so they send up Barnabas to investigate. Barnabas also sees that a work of the Holy Spirit has been uh, happening within uh, the Gentiles, even the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it says that he rejoiced with great joy. Then in, in a chapter 13, we see the first missionary journey taking place as Paul and Barnabas were separated for the work of the ministry and they set sail over to the island of Cyprus where they met the governor there uh, named Sergius Paulus and they preached the gospel to him and through a, a, just an amazing encounter with the Lord and some crazy spiritual warfare, Sergius Paulus gets saved. And the interesting thing about that conversion of that Gentile was that here was a man who had been uninformed of the God of the Jews. Uh, this whole idea of an accountability to a creator and, and, and the need of a savior because of our sin, uh, it, was, it was pretty new information to Sergius Paulus. Whereas Cornelius had had a hunger for Yahweh, had had a hunger for the things of God and had been praying and giving alms and seeking the God of the Jews. But now Sergius Paulus, uh, just a, a complete pagan, uh, getting saved there on the island of Cyprus. Uh, then as Paul and Barnabas continue their missionary journey, they head up towards the region of Galatia and they just minister to about five different cities there in Galatia, seeing just this mass revival of the Gentiles throughout that region. Not met without opposition, I must say. There was a lot of opposition against the gospel there. I say all that to just give us a little bit of a history that by Acts chapter 15, revival was happening among the Gentiles. They were getting saved. They were being made aware of the gospel, that there was a creator that they were to give an account to. This creator was a holy, sovereign, righteous judge uh, that had creator rights over his creation. But creation had slapped him in the face and began to worship other things, other people, created things, and they were in desperate need of a savior. Enter in Jesus Christ, the son of God, God incarnate or in the flesh, who laid down his life as a ransom for all that sin that was holding mankind in bondage. And because of the blood of Jesus, if man would respond to that grace, that gift of salvation, they would be saved and glorify God with their lives, also inheriting eternal life. Okay, that's basically the gospel in a nutshell for some of you today. For all of you, some of you, maybe the first time hearing it. But the Gentiles, for the first time, they had heard it. They had loved it. They'd embraced it. Many of them had gotten saved. Word of this revival to the Gentiles had gotten back to Jerusalem and many hardcore legalistic Jewy Christians were starting to wonder, what does this mean now that all of these Gentiles are merging into Christianity? What does it mean? And, and we're going to find out today through Acts chapter 15, were the Jewish Christians vision big enough to see the gospel of Christ not as a reformation to the Jewish faith, 
but as a good new news to the whole world, to every nation, to every tribe, to every tongue, and that the church now was not a reformation to Judaism or even in addition to Judaism, but a new family of God. Acts chapter 15 is the turning point in the, in the book of Acts. It's like a hinge where before we see Peter, just a, a huge emphasis on Peter, although we've seen that less in the last couple chapters, we're going to see here in Acts chapter 15, the last mentioning of Peter in the book of Acts or the last time we actually see him. Uh, it's also uh, where, where the focus is taken from Jerusalem and at the rest of the book of Acts, we're going to see the focus being on Asia Minor and Europe and Rome uh, is, is really in the background there. And so there's just this hinging point from Judaism and the focus on Judaism. And now God is, is showing that he has a plan for the Gentiles, for the Gentiles to be saved and the gospel going forth to the uttermost parts of the world. We're going to see the gospel uh, here in chapter 15 is liberated from its Jewish swaddling cloths. And, and here in chapter 15, it's shown as God's message for all mankind. And, and, and it wasn't that the Lord himself had allowed the gospel to be swaddled, but it was the minds of these Jewish Christians that were trying to figure things out. They'd been holding back the gospel kind of selfishly. And now we're going to see it going forth to all mankind every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so here in chapter 15, we see certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, so men from Jerusalem had gone down to Antioch, this kind of this, this Gentile uh, area, these Gentile Christians, the, the new hub of uh, the mission world for the church, and they began to preach this other gospel. Now, first of all, we want to note who these men were. They were from Jerusalem. Uh, they were Jewish believers. Uh, they were men called Judaizers. They were Pharisees who were zealous for the law. They were zealous for the law of Moses. Their whole life and job was about keeping the law. And yet these guys had found Jesus and, and uh, you know, embraced the message of Christ. And yet they were still hung up on the law. They were still hung up on works. And they would come down to Antioch now and put this legalistic trip on the Christians that were living in Antioch there. And the message that they said was that um, unless, and that's the ultimatum, unless you are circumcised, and, and, uh, and that's you know, the, the real making of a Jew, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this is a, mesh, a message of these guys that are calling themselves Christians. They're coming to this Gentile region and they're really preaching another gospel. It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it's a message of works. Unless you are circumcised, unless you have had that flesh removed from the male reproductive organ, you cannot be saved. That word saved there, what does it mean? It's the word sozo in the Greek. And anybody know what saved means? Saved from what? Saved from hell. Saved from judgment uh, for our sin. Even saved from guilt and saved from condemnation. So this other gospel said, unless you're circumcised, unless you do this work, you know, unless you cut off the flesh, you're going to hell. You're going to hell. You're guilty and you're condemned. And we see the situation that's described here in Acts chapter 15 with these men coming down, putting this trip on these people is really one of the same of Galatians chapter 2 verse 11. If you'll flip over there in your Bible, we get a little more in-depth account of what's happening here. Galatians chapter 2 verse 11 
says, now when Peter had come to Antioch, so see, he even was, you know, he was visiting Antioch. Paul withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with them, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. And so we see here, and we're going to read a little more in Galatians, so don't turn away. We're going to see that Galatians was actually written before Acts chapter 15. Galatians was written uh, after Paul's missionary journey to them. He'd gotten home and these legalistic Judaizers was what they were called came into Antioch and were also going all throughout the world, going throughout Galatia and preaching this message of you cannot be saved unless you are circumcised. And so Paul writes this letter, Galatians, and says, do not depart from grace. You remember how I preached to you while I was there that you would continue in the grace of God. Don't depart from grace. Don't depart from God's unmerited, unearned favor towards you and go back to this legalistic trip of works and performance-based salvation. Don't do it. And he says, he tells a little story. Man, even here in Antioch, the Judaizers would come from Jerusalem. And even Peter, my buddy Peter, good old disciple Peter, he was there and, and this message of uh, of works that was t- a toxin to the gospel. It was even affecting Peter so that he was being a hypocrite, totally loving on the Gentiles because it was no secret. There was a work happening among the Gentiles. And yet when the Judaizers would come along, he feared them and would get up and pretend like he didn't even know them. And this hypocrisy even led away Barnabas, the son of encouragement. It, Barnabas began to play the hypocrite with him as well. But Paul didn't like that, man. Paul was a champion of grace. And in verse 14, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the, what does it say here? About the truth. When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Okay. uh, I said to Peter before them all. So just imagine this confrontation, you know, as Paul just in front of the apostle Peter, man, in his face, was standing into his face. These are the types of arguments where spit's coming out of your mouth, you know, where, where veins are sticking out of necks, you know. We're going to read a lot of that here in Acts chapter 15. And he, you know, he stood before them all in front of everybody. If you, Peter, being a Jew, live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, that includes circumcision, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even when we've believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified." So he stands up in Peter's face and he says, Peter, if you who are a Jew know that you can't be saved by the works of the law, why are you telling the Gentiles that they need to be? He says, we know that we are not saved by the works of the law because the works of the law can justify no flesh, but we're saved by faith, not saved by circumcision, Peter. We're not saved by keeping the law of Moses, Peter. We're saved by faith. So quit being a hypocrite because you know the truth. So start living the truth, Peter. Just got all up in his grill. You know, nobody likes public confrontation. But, you know, Peter was kind of used to getting rebuked in front of everybody. So it worked out. Whoa, slippery. And so what was happening here in Galatians and in Acts chapter 15 was that the gospel of grace or as Paul referred to it there, the truth of the gospel was being attacked. And the gospel of grace is, as you read it in verse 16, and I hope you're underlining 16, we are not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. That is the gospel of grace. That is the true gospel. And as Paul says earlier in Galatians, any other gospel is a false gospel. And if another angel even comes and preaches something else, you curse that angel. 
You curse that angel. And if anyone comes and preaches any other message, whether they're a Judaizer from Israel, you withstand them. You oppose them. The gospel of grace is found in Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine. And it says that we are saved by grace through faith. Faith is the conduit by which we're saved. We're saved by grace through faith, not of works of any kind, circumcision, working of the law, wearing holy underwear, going door to door and passing out tracts, going on missions, trips to Honduras, whatever it is, we are not saved by works lest any man should boast. Lest we should stand before God on that day and say, I got myself here, buddy. I don't need you. I worked it all out myself. And Paul also says in Galatians, well, if you could have done that, then Jesus died in vain. Jesus wouldn't have had to come and die on the cross if you could just work it out yourself. You can't work it out yourself. And that's why Jesus had to come. The gospel of grace is being attacked here. And we're going to see here in chapter 15 that eventually circumcision wasn't even the issue. But the Judaizers are going to want them to keep the whole law of Moses the whole law of Moses to be saved. The Judaizers, these legalistic men, they were like a pressure group. And you know, whenever there's liberty within the church, liberty brings forth great joy. When we realize we're not saved by our works, but we're saved by grace. When we realize that God's favor upon us is not performance-based, but he sees us through the lens of his son. He sees us through the cross, and that's why we have favor with him. And you know what? Legalistic men and women hate that. They hate that there could be joy. They hate that there's freedom. And so whenever they see freedom, they come in and they try to quench it by putting a legalistic trip on people saying, you can't do this and you can't do that. And you must do this and you must do that. And Colossians chapter two, verse 23 says, indeed, all of these trips that they put on you have an appearance of religion, self-imposed religion. And they have an appearance of false humility and they have an appearance of a neglect of the body. But it says there in Colossians uh, 2.23, but they have no value against the indulgence of the flesh. It's just a bunch of works that make you self-righteous, make you appear to be self-righteous. And that is what was being brought to Antioch here in chapter 15. Well, in verse 2, Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, let's just figure out what that means real quick. What do you think that means? You know, they were yelling again. The spit was flying. The veins were popping out of the neck. You know, they were withstanding these guys to their faith, uh, uh, face. And it, it goes on to say that they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. You know, Paul and Barnabas got in a fight with these guys, got in a yelling match with these guys, you know, because the Judaizers were essentially saying the cross is great. Remember, they embraced the cross. They liked the thought of Jesus. They said the cross is great, but it's not enough. It's awesome. Not enough. The blood of Jesus is special. But it alone does not atone. You got to start working. Got to start doing stuff. Then you'll be saved. And what their message did was belittled the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. They turned John chapter 19 where Jesus says it is finished to it is finished. But now or to, uh, you know, it it was almost finished. But now we got to rely on the law of Moses uh, to finish it. You know, and the the law of Moses now needs to supplement the gospel, must supplement the cross, must supplement the blood of Jesus because it's just not enough. The cross is just a little too weak. That was the message of the Pharisees. That was the message of these Judaizers. And so I'm so glad that Paul had a spine and that Paul had a personality that God had put in him to stand up to these guys and to fight against legalism to fight against this cancer uh, that had been creeping in into the church there. 
Do you guys, you got to understand that as we get into chapter 15 and as we, as we look at the debate that goes on here, that the gospel as we know it was at stake. They were attacking the gospel. The gospel was threatened. And if the Judaizers won this argument, Christianity would have just been morphed into another sect of Judaism, which it would have, it would have just been watered down and just remain Judaism works based religion. That's what it would have become. It would have become, you know, within uh, 20 years of Jesus dying and ascending, Christianity would have been gone. It would have been watered down and diluted so much that today we would have just been reading about it in the history books about something that happened 2000 years ago, but now it's just still Judaism. It would have been a joke to the world if the Judaizers would have won. Because the message the Judaizers brought was no different than, than uh, the Old Testament covenant under Moses there. And so thank goodness Paul didn't back down. Praise the Lord. He stood up and fought because things would have been looking way different today uh, had the Judaizers won. So they determined to send counsel on down to Jerusalem. They knew that that is where uh, this uh, debate must be won. And, you know, throughout church history, there have been councils like this, like the Council of Nicaea, the Council of, of uh, Hippo, and, and many councils where doctrines and things were established so that we knew what to go out and, and preach and stand on. And uh, so it says, verse 3, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria describing the conversion of the Gentiles and they caused great joy to all the brethren. So now we remember from uh, Philip's ministry there in chapter eight of Acts that revival happened in Samaria, something that Jesus started there with the woman at the well. But there were a lot of Christians there, uh, Samaritan Christians. Now remember, Samaritans were half breeds. You know, they were hated by the Jews. And so for the Samaritans to hear from Paul and Barnabas that, that Gentiles were getting saved, the Holy Spirit was being poured out and giving gifts and, and God was working radically through the Gentiles, that caused great joy among the Samaritans and among the Phoenicians because they knew that's just pretty much us. And then look what Jesus has done among us. And then I'll tell you what, when you've been a partaker of the grace of God, it brings great joy to your heart to hear of others that are partakers of the grace of God. If you've been loved much, you love much, <laughs> you know, you understand what's been given to you. And so here they are, man, they rejoice at the grace of God that's going throughout the world. And when they come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. This awesome welcoming that come and they were received and and that honeymoon didn't last too long because in verse 5, some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them. So pretty much the same message we just read about in Antioch, right? It's necessary. You know, there's, a, there's an ultimatum there. Unless you are circumcised, it's necessary. You've got to be circumcised, men. But they didn't stop there this time, did they? It went on, didn't it? That's what happens with legalism. It doesn't just stop at one little, oh, and we've got to do this one little thing because that one little thing snowballs into more things and great things and works and works and works. And the gospel of grace, it's gone. It's gone in an avalanche of legalism. And that's exactly the avalanche starts here. You've got to be circumcised and then command them to keep the law of Moses. So be circumcised keep the law. And so no longer is salvation obtained by works through circumcision, but it's also maintained by works, keeping the law. Again, a different gospel, another gospel. Basically, they're saying, hey, Gentiles, you've got to become a Jew. You've got to become a Jew. That's the only way to be saved. The cross isn't enough. The blood isn't enough. And so verse six now the apostles and the elders came together to consider the matter. Okay, so there's some debate that's going on. There's some arguing that's going on. There's a major subject on the line here. And the issue can be clearly defined by a series of questions. Let me just give you them real quick. Number one, is the sinner saved by the sheer grace of God 
in and through Christ crucified when he or she simply believes, that is, flees to Jesus for refuge? That's the question on the line here. Has Jesus, by his death and resurrection, done everything necessary for salvation? Another question here. Or are we saved partly through the grace of God and partly through our own good works and religious performance? Is justification by faith alone or through a mixture of faith and works, grace and law, Jesus and Moses? Or is it faith alone? And finally, are Gentile believers just another sect of Judaism or authentic members of a multinational family? Guys, don't let this subject bore you. Do not let it bore you. It is one of the most pivotal, important chapters in the book of Acts, maybe even the whole New Testament changes everything, the decision of this debate that goes on here. You think about Supreme Court cases that rock the nation. You know, think of Roe v. Wade. Think of the Dred Scott case. Marbury versus Madison. You know, these major pivotal Supreme Court cases that changed the country. This is bigger than all of them combined. This changes people's eternity forever and ever. This changes the glory of God. This is major. Don't get bored by it. This is a major debate that's going on here. And so they came together to consider the matter. You've got the apostles or those that um, walked and talked with Jesus. You've got the elders or the pastors in the church in Jerusalem. Uh, and, and they all came together to consider the matter. And when there had been much dispute, notice one word that's repeated in this chapter is dispute, dissension, you know, arguing happens within the church. Not a bad thing. It's good to dispute. It's good to search the scriptures and make sure that we're right on doctrine. And here they stood up, you know, they stood up for the truth. They had a dialogue. And after much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, our God chose among us that by my mouth, by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So about, this was about 10 years ago. He says, you guys remember 10 years ago when I was called by the Lord to go to Cornelius' household, that they could hear the gospel, that they would believe that the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon them. They would even be given gifts. So he said, so God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He says, there's no distinction between Cornelius's house, the Gentile, the Roman centurion, and what happened to us in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost. The Lord had no distinction. Those Gentiles got saved and received the Holy Spirit and were baptized and we were saved. And we had the Holy Spirit poured out upon us. So there's no distinction. He did it to us, he did it to them. And he made no distinction, verse nine, between us and them, purifying the hearts by faith. How were their hearts purified by works, by Cornelius getting circumcised and his house being circumcised? How were their hearts purified? Well, who cares if their hearts were purified? You, you know what the Psalms say? Who can ascend to the presence of the Lord? Who can climb up his holy hill? Those that are pure in heart. Those that are pure in heart will see God as the Beatitudes tell us. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. Proverbs says, who can say I've had my heart clean and I'm pure from my sin. And here we see in Acts chapter 15, it's by those who put their faith in Jesus Christ that can have pure hearts. If you just flip real quick, those of you that are fast, you can flip over to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, where the, the author says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of our faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Does that describe you today? Does that describe you? I want you to search your heart right now. Better yet, I want you to ask Jesus to search your heart. Just say, Lord, do I have a pure heart before you? 
Or is my heart tainted with sin? Is my heart hardened with sin? Lord, will I be able to ascend your holy hill? Will I be able to dwell in your tabernacle, God? Or do I have a dirty heart? Lord, do I have a pure heart? Well, Hebrews tells us that those that have faith in Jesus have their hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Has your conscience been getting to you lately? Constantly, oh man, oh man, oh man. In Jesus Christ, your conscience can be cleansed. It's a work that the Holy Spirit does in the believer. And not only that, the Lord washes your body with pure water. When you are born again, you are clean. You are free. And we see Peter say here that Cornelius's house, this Gentile Roman soldier, no doubt brought up around paganism, he and his family and all Gentiles since that had put their faith in Christ had had their hearts purified. Have you had your heart purified? Now, therefore, why do you test God? Remember, this is Peter talking to everybody that is just arguing about grace versus works. And Peter says, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the necks of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? You guys, that verse is a gem in this argument. He's saying, number one, you're testing God, something we're told not to do. You're testing God's ability to save through grace. Just like Satan you know, said, did God really say you shouldn't eat of the fruit? And here they were testing Christ. Did God really say grace through faith? Did he really say? And he said, you're testing God. And in bringing this message of works to Antioch and to Galatia, you're putting a yoke. And you guys all know what a yoke is, right? We're not talking that part of the egg. Uh, We're talking what? That large wooden implement that was placed between two oxen that a man could uh, plow or pull large loads with. Something that weighed down that beast. It says, when you preach a message of works-based salvation and works-maintained salvation, you're putting a yoke on Christians. You're putting a weight on Christians. And he says, and that is a yoke that neither we, Peter, James, John, you know, Jude, all of us, none of us were able to pack that yoke. And not only that, our forefathers were never able to pack that yoke. Nobody could keep the law. Everybody kept breaking the law. They're stealing, they're coveting, they're materialistic. They've got other gods, you know, constantly breaking the 10 commandments. And that's just 10 out of 630. People can't do it. And I love Romans chapter eight, verse three. It says for what the law could not do in that it was weak in our flesh. The law couldn't be kept. God did by sending his only son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and he condemned sin by fulfilling the law. He did it. Jesus did it. And by faith in him, anyone that believes in his name, they've done it as well. His righteousness has been imputed into our account. But none of the forefathers, none of the Jews before, none of them were able to do it. So Peter says, so why are we putting this stinking weight, this trip, this yoke, this burden upon these new Christians? What did Jesus say about yokes? He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle in spirit. And, and, and you'll find rest for your souls. Jesus didn't say, hey, come to me so I can put what you were never able to do back on you again so that you can maintain your salvation and, and that's restful. Don't worry about it. No, he didn't say that. He said, man, through grace, I'm going to take that yoke off of you and I'm going to put it upon myself. I'm going to carry it for you that your righteousness could be obtained and maintained through me and through my spirit. Key question asked there in the Supreme Court there. In verse 11, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. He is using the Gentiles as the example of how the Jews might be able to be saved. Hey, 
they they were saved and they had the Holy Spirit poured out about, upon them. And I believe we Jews who have this past history of always defaulting to our works, I believe that we can be saved in the same manner as them by grace through faith. And you know what? Peter, probably unknowingly here, is basically echoing Paul's rebuke to him that we just read in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. That's almost the same wording as Paul stands in Peter's face and says, you know what? They're all saved by grace through faith. We are too. It's almost the same wording. You know what? We always wonder what our rebukes do to people. They're going to be mad at me if I correct them. Or they're going to be humbled. They're going to receive that correction. And they're going to be changed forever. Even remembering the words that you use to help correct others. Don't be a chicken when it comes to correcting people, you guys. Stand in the word of God. Paul's rebuke to Peter, we see it it working out a a great work in Peter there. Verse uh, 12. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. We've been studying that the last couple chapters in Acts. And they go down to Jerusalem and they just say, hey, check out. Let Let me just tell you the story about what happened on the island of Cyprus. When this, you know, bar Jesus dude, this sorcerer that was always whispering into Sergius Paulus's ear. And, and I was so sick of competing with that blasphemer sorcerer that I said, be quiet, Sergius Paulus. You are, you are in, you know, you're perverting the, the ways of the Lord. You're going to be blind. And boom, the sorcerer is blind. And Sergius Paulus, the governor of Cyprus, who, you know, fears the word of the Lord, trembles and is saved. And everyone's like, ooh, you know, as they hear this story. Wow, that's amazing what God was doing on that. Yeah, that's not even half of it. Then we went up to Galatia and, you know, blah, 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 and there was a lame guy in Lystra who's been lame since his mother's womb. And Paul says, man, when I was looking at him, I knew he had the faith to be healed. As he received Christ in his heart, he also received strength in his feet. And he jumped up and he was leaping around. Wow, that's really similar to Acts chapter 3 when that happened with Peter and John. Yeah, exactly. And so as they told the stories of the miracles that were happening on the missionary journey, all of the Jews that were sitting there arguing for the law and arguing for works-based faith or works-based salvation, they're thinking, you know what? God's doing everything in these Gentiles who haven't been circumcised and haven't been keeping the law of Moses, haven't even heard of the law of Moses, he's doing the same thing in them that he did in us and has been doing in us. In other words, the signs and the wonders that accompanied the preaching of the gospel substantiated that the message of the gospel going out was valid and that the gospel of grace was valid, confirmed it 100%. Okay? So... Verse 13, after they had all become silent, they're all just wondering, wow, what's going on? James answered saying, men and brethren, listen to me. So this is James, okay? James, the brother of Jesus, also known as James the just because of his firm stance on righteous living. He stands up and says, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon or Peter has declared how God at the first visiting of the Gentiles or at the first, visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it's written in Amos chapter 9. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up. This is a a prophecy from Amos of Jesus, the seed of David being killed and rising from the dead so that the rest, verse 17, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things known to God from eternity are all his works. So he says, you know what? It's been prophesied from of old that, that the seed of David would come and die and rise from the dead. And from that, Gentiles would be saved uh, as they hear of the resurrection. And he says, known to God from all eternity are all his works. It was not kind of a, you know, a last minute thought as God saw history rolling along. Like, hey, you see the way things are working out? You know what? The Gentiles could probably get saved the way things are working out here. This wasn't an afterthought to God as if he hadn't had it all figured out, but rather he had predestined Gentiles to be saved as well. 
You know, and, and man, that's an incredible thing. I think of Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depths and riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways and his judgments past finding out who's known the mind of the Lord, who has become his counselor, who is given to him that he should repay him. In other words, man, God's ways and his mind and his thinking are so beyond ours. He's had this figured out, guys, that the Gentiles would be saved by grace through faith from before the foundations of the world. Why are we getting all tripped up on that? And so he says, verse 19, therefore I judge or, or I have a verdict here. And, uh, and, and this is where we understand that James, the brother of Jesus was basically the church leader there. Um, it wasn't Peter, like so many think Peter, the Pope, that's not who it was. It was actually James, the brother of Jesus standing up, making the judgment, the verdict I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. So what is it from this verse that we get? What is it to preach a message of legalism or a, or a message of works-based and maintained Christianity? What is it? It's trouble. It's trouble. It's irksome. You know, it's way, it's a yoke. Man, think of all the, the words that we have here in this chapter that describe legalism. You guys, you, you realize you put that on yourself? Sometimes you put that on yourself when you're condemned in your heart and you've messed up and you've sinned. You feel like God hates you and you're going to hell and I can never ask for forgiveness. I can never uh, confess my sins and be healed. No way. I've just really blown it this time and God's not hearing my prayers. And you know what? That's works based, works maintained Christianity, not a, a Christianity, you know, appealing to grace. We need to appeal to grace don't trouble yourselves, you guys. Don't put a yoke upon yourselves. Appeal to grace. Appeal to God's unearned favor upon your life. We should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God from those useless things, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, uh, and from blood. So, you know, he says, you know, we can't put this weight on them. You know, this weight of works obtained, works maintained um, uh, faith, which is, would just be another sect of Judaism. But he gives these uh, important, uh, these, um, this important checklist, these four things that Christians uh, should abstain from. Not must. It's not the word that's used there. Um, uh, but, you know, just, you know, something that Christians should abstain from. Let me write something that or read something I read from John Stott this morning. He said uh, to abstain from these things, these things that are listed would be a courteous and temporary, although in some instances necessary concession to Jewish consciences. These are not essential Christian duty, but a concession to the consciences of others Jewish converts who still regarded such food as unlawful and abominable in the sight of the Lord. Okay, so let's just read that list. Uh, but we write to them, verse 20, to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So he says, because... For, for hundreds of years, people have been reading Moses. Jews from all over the world have synagogues and they've been studying the law and, and, you know, they really value the law. It's special to them. You know, um, there are some that when they receive Christ, they're going to have a tender conscience regarding some things. So for all you Gentiles that get saved and you're used to, uh, going to the meat market and getting meat that's been offered to idols because it's the best, most tender, juicy cut already, you know, frag, you know, cooked and marinated, you know, Hey, just be sensitive. Okay. Be sensitive. You know, have a sensitivity to your brother's conscience because there are Jews all over that, you know, they see you buying that meat from the idol uh, factory, you know, and, uh, and they're going to be stumbled in their heart because of that. You know, really what we have here is the essence of Christian liberty, Christian liberty. You know, uh, some people take Christian liberty and, and say, you know what? I can do this because I can, 
God said, I can. Well, I just wanted you to know it kind of stumbles me, you know, when you, when you drink that or when you watch that or when you go there, it stumbles me. I just want you to know, well, I can do whatever I want. Don't judge me. Judge not. Jesus said it. Look it up, you know, and, and, you know, or grace says that I can, you know, and some people think that that's what grace is. But, you know, what grace really is, is saying, you know what? I can, I can, I have freedom in Christ, but because I know it stumbles you when I talk that way or when I do this or whatever, you know, uh, it stumbles you because it stumbles you and I love you. I choose not to. I choose not to. Now, there's things in Scripture that it's, hey, don't do this. Don't do this. This is sin. You know, this is immoral. You know, don't do it. And those are things we should not do. But there are gray areas in Scripture. There are things that, you know, it's, it's according to your conscience whether you do these things or not. And as Christians with liberty, we're not to use liberty, as Paul says in Galatians, as an opportunity for the flesh to sin but rather we can use our liberty to serve one another and to love one another. And then he goes on to say there in Galatians, for all of the law is summed up in this. You should love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's liberty. And so they send this letter out, verse 22. Therefore, it pleased the apostles and letter with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named uh, Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. So they send this whole delegation to go tell what their verdict had been in Jerusalem. You know, that, that it's by grace alone that we are saved through faith. Okay, and so they send Paul and Barnabas, but that wasn't enough because Paul and Barnabas argued the side of grace. So they also send members from the other side of the argument who had argued works-based, but had come to the agreement, no, it is grace. It's all about grace. And so they all go through and they spread that message and they share the letter You know, they hand out the letter. Hey, everybody, it's through grace. We've determined, we know from the scriptures that it's through by, by grace, through faith that we're saved. And they sent this letter out. They wrote this letter, verse 23, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren to the brothers that are in are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, Cilicia, greetings. Since we've heard that some of, uh, that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls. Again, what is uh, a message of legalism? It's troublesome. It's a yoke. And also what? It unsettles your souls. It unsettles your souls. Saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such command. James wanted them to know, hey, that was never, we never told anybody to go preach that false gospel, just so you know. They went out on their own. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who've risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, these, these are guys are legit. These guys don't count their lives dear to themselves, but they've given it all for Jesus, even if it means dying for him. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who will also report the same things by the word of mouth for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you do well, farewell. So just this amazing victory here in Acts chapter 15, an amazing victory uh, for truth as, as the gospel of grace is defended. Amazing victory that, that a huge argument that had the potential to split the church in half, ruin Christianity, you know, make Christianity just morph into Judaism and just, you know, disappear off the face of the earth. But this victory for truth among these men who loved God enough to dialogue and debate the scriptures so that they knew they were standing in the truth. So there's a victory for truth, but then there's also a victory for love in this chapter, in this section. Because, you know, James could have just been like, hey, you know what, guys? You're, you're saved by grace. You know, if someone complains about the way you're living, then just, you know, give them a what for, you know, just tell them, ah, it's all about grace. Forget it. No, he says, hey, you need to be sensitive to your brother. You need to be sensitive to your brother. Let's flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 real quick. 
And, and as you're flipping there, remember the four things that they were to abstain from is necessary to abstain from these things so that there would be unity within the church. After all, what do you do with, you know, two separate polarized groups of people? One group that's like, you know, you know, maybe lacking on the end of discipline of themselves, you know, and one group that's all about disciplining themselves and trying to, you know, keep the law. How do you get those guys to finally come together and, and have fellowship together? You got to have love, right? You got to have love. You have to have grace upon each other. And so, you know, don't eat things polluted by idols. Just, just stay away from it. You know, abstain from sexual immorality. Those Gentile cultures, they were very licentious. Anything went as far as sex was concerned. I mean, if, as you look at the temple, thousands and thousands of temple prostitutes that were in almost every pagan city. I mean, anything went, okay? And, and everything was accepted, so abstain from that, uh, abstain from things strangled because that means that there's more blood in the meat and that might stumble your Jewish brother. Um, and, and so, uh, and abstain from blood. And so these, these proposals were not restrictions on liberty as if they were legalistic, but they gave uh, liberty an opportunity to love. And here in chapter eight of first Corinthians, we have this, you know, this debate that had gone around in the church, like, Oh, don't eat that. That's been offered to an idol. Okay. Uh, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the things eating, uh, eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. But even if there are so-called lowercase g gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, many idols, yet for us there's one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge for some, that consciousness of the idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But, and here's key, verse 9, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours, this freedom of yours, becomes a stumbling block to those that are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will not the conscience of him who's weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother um, stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. You guys, that is grace. We have the freedom to do these things that might make somebody stumble. You know, have a beer, watch a certain show, watch a certain movie, you know, go to a certain place. There's freedom in these things. But if somebody hears that we do this or sees us do this, and we know that they've got a weak conscience, and we know that they'll either be stumbled by us doing it or they would do it with us, and then they would just be so condemned because they did it, because they have a, a, a weak conscience, um, then we're not loving them. We're not loving them. And we're actually sinning in our lack of love. Because the gospel of grace and liberty, it's all about love. It's about loving each other. And so, you know, this letter to these churches, this letter to the Gentiles says, look, guys, you have the freedom in Christ. But I just want you to know there are Jews all over where you live that have been reading Moses since they were born. And they're trying to get past this works-based relationship with God. And, and they're trying to taste of grace. But, but it's a slow thing for them. And they're going to be stumbled. Be careful. Be sensitive. A victory for truth. The gospel of grace. And a victory for brotherly love. That because we love each other, though we have the freedom to do certain things, man, we're going to be sensitive to each other. Amen? Awesome, awesome chapter. There's more to it, but we're going to end there today. Stuart, why don't you come on up?
One man said that this letter is a masterpiece of tact and delicacy. That letter, I mean, there was a war going on about grace versus law, blah, blah, blah. And just this letter, just this work of the Holy Spirit went out, tactful and delicate and full of love, full of brotherly love. May the Lord make us that. May he make us masterpieces of tact and delicacy with each other. Let's stand. Lord Jesus, we worship you this morning. I am so thankful that you made Paul, Lord, to have his personality, that he wouldn't back down, and to have his mind, that he could really reason with these Judaizers. And Lord, I'm so thankful for even the Judaizers who repented there and, 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 and just yielded to grace. And Lord, I know in this room there are men and there are women that they think they're right with you because of something they've done. They think they're right with you because they're a philanthropist and they're nice to men and they do things. They work at the Christmas Bazaar. They help at the Oasis. They quit flipping people off. Whatever it is, Lord, they think, oh, I'm good now. I'm good with God. And yet, Lord, within their own righteousness, they are like dirty, filthy rags. Lord, today, would you help them appeal to your grace? Let them understand the freedom from knowing that it's not based upon what we do. It's based upon what you have done. And if that's you today, I just encourage you right where you're at, yield to the grace of God. I just have a picture of someone here today and they, they're like a soldier that has armor on. Just weighty, heavy armor. And each piece of that armor is like a thing that they have done that makes them self-righteous. And that each piece of that armor, each thing that you think you've done that wins you favor with God, it's weighing you down. Just that armor is weighing you down. It's hindering you from moving. It's going to cause your demise. I just had a picture that today you would lay down your self-righteousness, your works that you think makes you right, and you would put on the garment of grace today. Jesus says, put on my yoke. It's easy. It's light. You'll find rest for your souls. Quit striving to obtain. Quit striving to maintain. Right now where you're at, maybe for the first time today, you would lay down your weights, your self-righteousness. Jesus says, blessed are those that are poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. But today you are, you think you're rich in spirit. You think you have no need of anything. My brother, my sister, you are appealing to a false gospel. Today may you realize you are poor in spirit. You have nothing. Confess that to Jesus. Cry out for his goodness and his righteousness to be put upon you. And yours will be the kingdom of heaven. Christians out there today, you who suffer under condemnation because you fail, because you have a sinful nature, even today the enemy was telling you that you aren't good enough to sing to him, you're going to hell, Jesus' blood isn't enough. That is a lie, Christian. Today you can too appeal to grace, receive forgiveness. And that grace, it won't be a liberty to sin, but rather it'll be an opportunity to love, to love Jesus and to love each other. Romans chapter eight says that if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Don't let your heart condemn you today. Appeal to God's grace. Let's respond to his word. Let's receive grace today as we sing this final song.
You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further on our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you. 